0: You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, from New York City.
1: And I'm your co-host, Prashant Warren from Washington, D.C.
0: How are you, Prashant? Good to be back. Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Um, it's been a uh, tense couple of weeks, I guess, uh, on the Korean Peninsula. Um, we've uh, had a quite formidable war of words between... Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. Um, I guess the place to start might be Trump's remarks last week uh, threatening North Korea with fire and fury for continued threats. And um, that was followed up just the next day by a couple of unusual statements from North Korea threatening um, long-range missile tests at the waters near the U.S. territory of Guam, which, uh, as we've discussed on this podcast before, is a perpetual source of um, tension in the relationship. The North Koreans really dislike Guam because it's uh, home to U.S. Pacific Command's continuous bomber presence mission in the Pacific. Uh, Specifically, it's where the strategic bombers, specifically the non-nuclear capable B-1B Lancers live and uh, take off to uh, conduct their patrols to the Korean Peninsula. So North Korea said that they would um, review an order to, um, or at least review a plan with Kim Jong-un to fire missiles. And this has kind of gotten lost in a lot of the reporting. So I just wanted to point that out. I mean, they never really said that we will launch missiles. Um, they said that you know, in mid-August, the director uh, the chief of the strategic rocket force would present kim jong-un with a plan to strike guam which happened that i mean exactly in mid-august right august 15th was the day he reviewed those plans mm-hmm. and now it's something that they've kind of kept up their sleeve and it's interesting because it opens up all these opportunities i guess you know they're uh, they would be overflying japan again uh, they've never done that with the system they've identified as a ballistic missile they did it twice in 1998 and in 2009 with their satellite launch vehicles but this would be another kind of provocation. Um, So, you know, just wanted to kind of um, start with, I guess, this Guam episode. But again, I mean, you know, it just kind of takes me back to April when um, all of that stuff was going on with the Carl Vinson carrier and there was this uh, uneasiness in the media more broadly about potential conflict with North Korea. I mean, um, I don't think that, you know, I think a lot of that has maybe been uh, sensationalized a little bit too much. Um, We aren't really in the middle of any particular escalation with North Korea, um, but I think you know, we will see tension soon. The U.S., uh, South Korea, uh, conventional exercises the Ulchi Freedom Guardian combined drills begin to kick off in a, in just a few days. So um tensions on the Korean peninsula are back. I mean it's been it's been a big theme this year. We've been doing continuous podcasts on North Korea. It feels like um but yeah, I mean, uh, what's your uh, what's your sense on uh where things are uh, you're in DC, so uh, do you sense that uh, North Korea is again at the top of the agenda when it comes to the administration's foreign policy?
1: Yeah, I think I think very much so uh and I and I think, you know, to the frustration of many, I think who uh whom would much prefer a sort of more diversified uh, asia policy and a much more stable i think asia policy right i mean in last podcast episode we were talking about you know asean and the 50th anniversary uh, and we touched a bit on north korea and we, we talked about this idea of like sort of the north koreanization of us foreign policy right mm-hmm. The string of crises uh, some of them not even uh, needed, really. Uh, this this rhetorical escalation by Trump and and fire and fury, um, and so it it you'd like to say that it's a distraction, but uh, really it isn't. I mean, this is pretty serious stuff. Um, whether you're talking about deterrence or U.S. credibility more generally, all of that relies on clear signaling coming from both sides. We've been used to the North Koreans having this kind of escalatory rhetoric, and some folks will ignore it; other people will uh, place a lot more emphasis on that. But now we have, you know, the U.S. president—not um, just the U.S. administration, but the U.S. president directly—engaging in this escalatory rhetoric, and it, it really raises questions about some of the uh, key concepts and, you know, the, this idea of stability that we're all very used to talking about, right? Whether it's deterrence. Strategic stability, um, and we we go through uh, you and I when we write about North Korea, we talk about these concepts as if they can be assumed. Um, but whenever these incidents happen, uh, the public and you know the, some individuals out there will sort of question whether these assumptions actually hold, given some of the current events uh, that we're talking about. So, it, number one, it, it isn't useful, but number two, it's also like I said, I mean it, this is a very serious situation, right? I mean you wrote a series of pieces about these sobering estimates coming out from U.S. intelligence agencies about the worsening of the North Korea threat. Uh, We have the Guam crisis situation up here now, and then we've got these exercises coming up with the U.S. and and South Korea, um, and things are expected to be a little bit more unstable potentially there as well. So we seem to be going from crisis to crisis to crisis here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can talk a bit about those uh, Intel assessments, actually. I think it'd be useful to put that on the yeah, podcast. I mean, absolutely. I mean, look, I mean, um, they showed us the ICBM in, on July 4th, and they showed it to us again on July 28th. They flew it to um, what they say is the full range. Uh, they did that by lofting it to a crazy high altitude of 3,700 kilometers, um, and the... Reports that I've been uh, putting out recently um, based on conversations with um, various officials in the U.S. government with access to the latest intelligence assessments don't paint um, a particularly rosy picture, right? I mean, the U.S. intelligence community is in consensus. All, All agencies agree that North Korea is likely capable of satisfactorily Mating a compact nuclear warhead onto a ballistic missile, um, specifically its ICBM, but also probably its uh, medium-range systems and potentially its shorter-range systems. So that's a, a serious and grave milestone that they've reached. Um, the re-entry vehicle question was something that a lot of people um, continue to point to as kind of well, they're not there yet, or well, they're not going to get there for a few years. And I think that's completely the wrong bet to be making at this point. And uh, to that point, uh, the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, has um, put out an assessment just last week saying that um, their reentry vehicle technology based on the two ICBM tests so far um, it wouldn't make sense to bet against them um, if they decided to fly these missiles to full range. And there's a variety of kind of physical factors for why a highly lofted ICBM test probably isn't the best place to look for data about the actual performance of their reentry vehicle. You know, There was this video that came out. Uh, NHK uh, ran video from a security camera in uh, Hokkaido in Japan showing what appeared to be the reentry vehicle of the um, July 28th, ICBM launch and it looked like it was breaking down in flight and people kind of took that to mean that oh well I their, IC- uh, their re-entry vehicles aren't there yet um, I don't think that's the right bet to be making um, and then finally there's uh, you know this other assessment and this one's maybe the one that I'm a little um, cautious about because I think it's um maybe a little early and also I'm unclear about just you know how how this was put together but the um, The Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA, and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency both uh, put out this assessment on North Korea's fissile material, which suggests that they have enough material for 60 nuclear weapons today, uh, which is a huge number. Uh, 60 was kind of unheard of before this year, Um, and I think it's an uncertain number, to be honest. Um, But that same assessment also said that they're accruing material at a rate of 12 a year. Um, so you know, if that keeps up, I mean, North Korea could have a larger um, nuclear weapon stockpile than either Pakistan or India um, in just a matter of a few years. So overall, I mean, this is a grave situation. Um, all of this, um, all of these assessments coming out, I think the bottom line is that I think um, you know, a preemptive war against North Korea is just unacceptably risky today. Um, especially, I mean, we don't know how many missiles they have, where these missiles are. Um, I'm not willing to bet that we would be able to. Eliminate each and every launcher that they have to prevent either retaliation against the U.S. homeland or retaliation against Seoul or Tokyo. I mean, Seoul is kind of a different question, just given the artillery and the short-range systems and the biological and chemical stuff that they have. Um, but yeah, I mean, this has been—it's been kind of a crazy uh, few weeks in in terms of just what we're learning about North Korea's capabilities.
1: Yeah, and I think the the, the with respect to the intelligence estimates too. I mean as As you correctly pointed out, they paint a universally sobering picture um, about where North Korea is headed, but also um, the fact that you know there are some folks who keep uh, underestimating North Korea's capabilities primarily because you know that it's it's thought of as an economically backward country. Some people consider the leadership to be, irrational despite the fact that we have a lot of evidence to the contrary if anything these estimates show that uh, the north korean threat deserves to be taken seriously and dealt with um, on a serious level Um, and when we have the intelligence community coming up with these assessments and then we have um, the perception at least that the Trump administration and Trump administration officials are not really coordinated in terms of the policy. So the official policy is, you know, we've keep talked about it before, right, maximum pressure, maximum engagement. But um, in reality, you have on any day a certain official saying something about the North Korean threat and then partly contradicted uh, by another official on the other day. And, you know, of course, Steve Bannon now uh, being gone, you know, you, you sort of think about, where is the, the sense of coherence here in terms of the strategy? I mean, we, in D.C., we keep being told um, and being assured that underneath all of this noise, there is a concrete strategy, and that's going on despite all of that. But it certainly doesn't help in terms of public perception that we have this gap between clearly you know, capable intelligence agencies telling us one thing about sobering threat assessments, but on the other hand, an administration not being very clear on exactly what it's doing.
0: Right, right. Um, I mean, one more thing I'll say is that, um, you know, this question of deterrence that you brought up earlier, um, it's interesting because a lot of these intel assessments, you know, what they should, the conclusion that they should lead to, I think, is that the United States, the mighty superpower that spends over $600 billion a year on defense, um, you know, several times North Korea's GDP, Um, is being deterred um, in a new way. I mean, the ICBM does introduce a new uh, deterrence element, right? We've talked about Mm -hmm. decoupling on the podcast before. We've talked about Um, the alliance coordination challenges it presents uh, for North Korea. I mean, obviously, we haven't had war on the Korean Peninsula since the armistice in 1953, um, and there has been a state of deterrence given um, North Korea has been able to threaten Seoul reliably for so many years, and South Korea has been in an alliance with the United States. Uh, But the introduction of the ICBM, I think, introduces this um, cognitively difficult concept for Many American officials to accept. I mean, I think this interview that uh, H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, did recently, where he said that credible um, classical deterrence theory didn't apply to North Korea, was an interesting indication. I mean, you know, McMaster Mm -hmm. is a scholar of Vietnam, and you know, he's he is clearly aware of the consequences that the United States once faced for. Going to war against an opponent that appeared to be backwards and was vastly misjudged. I mean, obviously, I'm not drawing an analogy here between, um, you know, Northern Vietnam and North Korea, but the but the idea is the same. I mean, this idea that a country with a GDP equivalent to what the United States is about to spend on two of its forward class aircraft carriers being able to successfully deter. Um, the mighty United States—it's—it's it, it, it's a difficult thing to contend with. It kind of goes against um, a lot of um, just what the United States and its strategic thinkers and planners um, believe about American power—that um, mm-hmm. the mighty United States uh, military can really um, is the ultimate hammer for kind of every nail of a problem. And in, in the North Korean case, I just don't think that applies anymore. Um, and the You know, there is this question too of the offense defense balance and the Trump administration potentially looking for a way out of this by simply pumping more cash into missile defense. And there's some signs that that might be happening. CIA Director Mike Pompeo gave an interview recently where he. Um revised Trump's old red line. You remember that red line that he tweeted mm-hmm. in January where he was like, yeah. uh, an ICBM won't happen. So obviously that did happen in July 4th. But <laughs> Pompeo recast that a bit. He said that um, we won't allow North Korea to put the US homeland at risk. And I think that's an important modification because it doesn't preclude them keeping this capacity in some way. Um, it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that we're going to go out and start taking out North Korean Missile manufacturing plants, um, nothing like that. It just means that uh, you know America just needs a sufficient level of security, and one way to do that is maybe to pump missile defense with a ton of money and say, you know, just call it a day. Say that we're confident in ground-based mid-course defense against ICBMs, and we're not going to go any further. Um, But you know, I am kind of starting to get off track a little, so um, I do want to kind of bring things back. I wanted to ask you. I mean, uh, I mean, look, like. Tillerson and Mattis put out this op-ed just last week that I thought contained an important nugget, right? So for the longest time, the United States said that for any diplomacy with North Korea, the precondition that mattered was North Korea would have to first make a bona fide gesture towards denuclearization. Um, And that no longer seems to be the case. This op-ed simply said that a unilateral moratorium on missile testing would be the sign now that North Korea is serious and ready to talk to the United States. That seems quite significant to me. I mean, what do you think about this idea of... Preconditions for diplomacy, more generally.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I think you're you're absolutely right to flag that because we've gotten uh, varying messages from the administration about the conditions that would be required for uh, particular things in exchange, right? Um, so. We've gotten, I mean, there, there's obviously been the the sort of uh, usual negotiations that have been going on in terms of backdoor with North Korea and trying to assess what that is. There's been signals from the administration about what he would like to see from North Korea in order for some of these things to change. But there's also been uh, signals from the North Koreans, right, about what they would like <laughs> uh, from the United States and South Korea. And, and this idea of the freeze deal that's, you know, you and I have written about that's been Floating around in Washington about how that should be dealt with and and whether that should change. I mean, my my own sense is that um, the the administration right now is still playing around uh, ver- with various options and seeing how uh, the North Koreans respond. Mm-hmm. Um, and the it's it's very difficult uh, for me to see them actually making a concrete decision when so many things are so uncertain. Right, not only U.S. policy but um, where the South Koreans are at on this, where the Chinese are at on this, because I think one of the biggest worries um, is that the Chinese are continuing to string along Trump, right? Um, and uh, and doing just enough. I and mean, you've seen, depending on you know what your viewpoint is, varying degrees of the Chinese trying to act tougher on on North Korea. But you know the the, the essential issue is the degree of uh, threat convergence between the United States and China will never exactly be there just because the interests don't really converge to the same degree as well. Absolutely. So with with so many variables still at play, it's very difficult for me to sort of see a a sort of firm line uh, with the administration on this, primarily because, you know, um, to put it bluntly, I mean, for an administration and a president who are they're looking for quick wins and shows of American strength and resolve precisely because of the reason that you stated, which is, you know, you have this seemingly poor, backward uh, country that is standing up to a superpower. How do you navigate that and get to a a sort of negotiated solution, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And Trump's instinct is to sort of, you know, this idea that Kim Jong-un will back down if we sort of take a tough stand or have a strong statement. Well, that's kind of not, uh, not, not only uh, not accurate, but not a very useful uh, thing to do in the context of deterrence and strategic stability, right? Um, but I did want to also get to the other point that you made about deterrence, because I think we, we've talked about this in the podcast previously, too. Um, you know, most of us accept that uh, when you dealt with uh, Mao's China, or you dealt with the Soviet Union under Stalin and other leaders as well. I mean, you you had to come to the conclusion that Eventually, deterrence was the acceptable outcome, even though it was not ideal. Um, but there was, if you look back, there was a lag time between when that reality was considered uh, acceptable by analysts, and that was a reality that was accepted by policymakers. Right. And I think what we will see with this administration inevitably, and and you know, I'm not sure how long the lag time will be, but we'll inevitably see a lag time because simply because while while it's okay for us analysts to say hey, we need to come to accept a nuclear North Korea, for U.S. policymakers to say that is a totally different thing, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Um, and this question of accepting a nuclear North Korea um, is interesting. I had a really interesting exchange about this actually um, on Twitter with uh, Joshua Pollock, who's a great uh, North Korea watcher. Um, we were having this conversation about this idea of legitimacy and what it actually means for the United States to accept North Korea as a nuclear state. I mean, you know, I think the de minimis position is that we are today accepting North Korea as a nuclear state precisely because uh, we did not prevent the outcome, right? Uh, either through military means or through diplomacy. Um, if we were serious about Upholding this um, you know, the norm of non-proliferation as the um end goal above all, um in a way we might have already prevented that. But the question of you know, legitimacy for North Korea, I think maybe gets overstated in a lot of the debates. Um in fact, I think um, you know, I went back and I read a lot of their statements after this uh, exchange, and you know, I was like, oh, I mean, um, I myself, I think I was a, a little guilty of giving them um, too much credit for wanting legitimacy. They simply have been clear about the fact that um, the reason that they do this is purely for security and deterrence reasons. And on the question okay. of deterrence, more broadly, this lag time that you bring up, I think is, um, I think is right on. Right. I mean, uh, it will take some time for the United States to process the fact that North Korean ICBMs are now a fact of reality, and the United States has been able to live with ICBMs ICBMs from so many other countries pointed at it um, and several, you know, way more ICBMs pointed at it in the past. Um, But, you know, the thing that leaves me uneasy about deterrence is that it's it's less of an outcome and kind of a, a state of being that is continuously in flux. I mean, the story of the Cold War was both the United States and the Soviet Union trying to escape this predicament of mutually assured destruction that they were in, which led to you know, massive arms races and arsenals comprising tens of thousands of warheads. In the North Korean case, that's not what we're looking at, but I think the North Koreans will um, try to remain one step ahead of the United States, right? I mean, missile defense solutions, for example, um, could provoke North Korea into investing simply more resources to outpace the pace at which the United States will be adding interceptors, right? Uh, the offense-defense balance just favors North Korea here. They can spend way less money and get way more bang for their buck, so to speak, by simply creating more missiles or investing in higher-yield um, higher, um, higher yield, uh, thermonuclear warheads, which they appear to be doing anyways. Um, so really, I mean... Th- does the United States win at the end of the day by accepting that deterrence is the best outcome for North Korea? No, but um, it appears to be the most realistic option right now, particularly because I just don't yeah. think the temperament for talk ex- uh, talks exists, right? I mean, yeah. this uh, idea that we've been talking about, about North Korea being this poor, backward country, what Richard Nixon once called a fourth rate pipsqueak of a power, um, mm-hmm. being able to deter the United States. I mean, the fact is that, you know, nobody's ready to make concessions. Nobody's ready to sit around a table with North Korean representatives and offer up um, serious concessions. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. just, uh, you know, that kind of admission of, quote unquote, weakness just isn't there yet. I mean, you know, we saw this with the Iran deal. Uh, It it took years for the United States. uh, And this was under the Obama administration, which obviously had a very different temperament about nuclear diplomacy and nonproliferation more generally, um, being able to offer real concessions. And we just don't have that with North Korea.
1: Yeah, um, and you know, I, I I like how you phrased it in terms of deterrence, right? I mean, it, it's not really uh, an outcome; it's it's a state of being. Um, and the the issue here is that um, not all the threats and, and risks from North Korea and its nuclear weapons arsenal will be eliminated through deterrence, right? I mean, you still have the proliferation risk. You you do have other things depending on how you frame the problem and frame the threat. Um, But the other thing is also, I mean, people often forget, right, the the Cold War, um, as you hinted at, I mean, it wasn't exactly a a very stable period. (laughs) Um, It it ended up that it was okay. um, But uh, there there were more than a couple of times when the United States and the Soviet Union almost went to nuclear war. Um, And one of the conclusions when the folks met from the U.S. and Soviet sides after the Cuban Missile Crisis was that we actually realized that we were closer to war and we actually thought that we were so. This just because um, deterrence and strategic stability may hold in some cases doesn't mean that we ought to learn those lessons and perhaps be a little bit too conceited about um, those lessons. Um, and I think the the final thing that I'd, I'd, I'd say on on North Korea um, specifically is that um, you're right. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, whether it's North Korea, or the United States, or whether it was the U.S. and the Soviet Union. The, the perennial dilemma you're dealing with is both sides always want to deal from a position of strength. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, you're going to have a situation that it's going to have to sort itself out in terms of the, the balance of power in that relationship. And it doesn't appear like uh, so far, based on the president that we have, that it's conducive to that kind of sort of, you know, a more sort of humble approach and appreciation of not just the, your strength, but also the the dilemmas and the weaknesses and the strengths of the other side as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah. and you know, I think the most um practical suggestion that I think uh should be discussed more in the meantime is just setting up uh you know some sort of military to military communication mechanism with North Korea. Um it used to exist. Um US and North Korean representatives used to meet at the DMZ at Panmunjom. Uh that hasn't happened in a while. Um but now with the era of the ICBM upon us, with the era of the long-range North Korean nuclear threat against uh, Guam uh, upon us, I think it's um it, It's really quite incumbent on the United States to um, approach North Korea about this. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, to prevent miscalculation. It's not uh, nobody is giving up anything. It's simply to uh, prevent the kind of conflict that uh, neither country might want, but might end up stumbling into regardless. Um, all right, Prashant, I think we'll uh, end the discussion there. I know this isn't the last we'll talk about North Korea this year, for sure. <laughs> That's for sure, Yep. Yeah. Um, so thanks for joining me. Uh, always a pleasure to do this. And for our listeners, if you uh, like the podcast, please do subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes. And if you have subscribed but you haven't left us a rating on iTunes yet, please do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And as always, if you're interested in hearing us uh, address a geopolitical issue that we haven't devoted some time to um, in this podcast yet, uh, please do message either me or Prashant and let us know. We'll, We'll consider adding it to the agenda. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.